uh, way back in the dark ages when I was responsible for a, a, a bear mascot at Baylor University. We would take the bears to the football games back then. It was great uh, for team spirit. It was excellent advertising for both the university and our, our main sponsor, Dr. Pepper. Uh, and on occasion, it led to some really remarkable interactions as humans interacted with the bears. Um, most of the time, people were delighted with the bear cubs. It didn't matter which one of the three we had. They were in various ages and sizes. Uh, people loved to, to pet their fur and to feed treats to the little bear and engage with them. It was really, it was very, very fun. However, some contacts were different. You see, on occasion, we would bump into hotheads from other schools who would think it was funny to tease the bear. Or, or who would like to be really ugly making fun of our school. We even had, true story, actually happened a couple of times. We even had people spit on the bear. Who spits on a bear cub? All right. So, so when David Kipp, when the other trainer, David and I, had had enough of this, here's what we would do. We would take a firm hold on the chains that we used around the bear to keep the bear in control. We would actually usually put a second chain on, and then we would lead down, and we would give a particular little command. We had a particular command that we used only in emergencies for the cub. And when we would give that keyword, the bear would rise up. He would rise up to his full height, which was, even with the small bears over six feet, with our largest, it was over eight feet high, and would rotate the arms forward and make this deep growl in the throat. It was Terrifying. A sight and a sound, let me just put it this way. When the bear would rise up, grown men would wish that they had worn brown pants to the game. Okay? <laughs> That's what it was like. Now, I told you that story so we'd have the proper mindset for this story. Open your Bible to Zephaniah chapter 3. Turn near the end of your Old Testament, right near the end of the Old Testament, and find Zephaniah. In Zephaniah 3, you know what we learned? We learned that God will rise up. Slip on your brown pants and let's read verse 8, okay? <laughs> Verse 8, God speaks, therefore, wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration until the day I rise up for plunder. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, in order to pour out my indignation on them, all my burning anger, for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. As we point out in your bulletin notes, you, you, you got a bulletin when you came in, right? Open that up. There's notes there inside. You've probably forgotten that, Rob. You've been gone so long. There's notes there in the middle. And, uh, and in those notes, first thing you'll see is therefore. Therefore equals a call to examine context. You know this. Whenever a section of Scripture starts off with the word therefore, what do we ask ourselves? We ask, what's it there for? That's right. So in this case, Zephaniah, by saying therefore, is summarizing all of his first two messages. By the way, Zephaniah's four messages, the first two are fairly long. The last two are fairly short. When he says therefore, he's referring us back to his first two messages. Here they are in a nutshell. Zephaniah, in his first two messages, is following the, the three great themes of all the prophets. Three major themes run through all the biblical prophecy. Number one, you have sinned. Especially, you've violated the Mosaic Covenant. Number two, you must repent. You must change your mind or you will face judgment. And number three, there is hope beyond judgment for a glorious future in relationship with Yahweh. Now, developing that third point, Zephaniah especially relates God's hope. Zephaniah offers hope. This is what God's saying. And, and not just for Israel, hope for all the nations. Now, detailing that hope, Zephaniah relates four specific promises. Four specific promises for people who will turn to Yahweh. First is he promises justice. Justice. This morning, just this morning, had conversations with two different people that are involved in very difficult legal situations. Isn't it comforting to know God promises justice? 
All God's people said? Amen. Amen. He will give eventual and permanent justice. Second thing, there is a future for Israel. There is a future for Israel. God promises that. Thirdly, there is a perfect future. There is going to be a perfect future for all believers, whatever their race. And fourth, he promises God's very presence. You see this in Zephaniah 1 and 2. God promises his presence and his eternal word. It lasts forever. That, that's, why, that's why promises became the title for our study of this book. Zephaniah is all about the greatness of God's promises. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't it excite you that God promises all this? Here's what he promises will come. Look, justice. He promises that. A future for Israel. A perfect future. Glorious future for everyone who believes in him. And he promises his very presence. And his word will never go away. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. However, you've got to begin the process where Zephaniah does, with the sure promise of judgment on sin. You see, modern people tend to camp here. We tend to camp in the third part, the, the idea of hope, which is fine, but you can't get to number three without first going through numbers one and two. It, it doesn't work in reverse. I don't care what math they're teaching these days. It doesn't work. Australian pastor Michael Bentley is spot on. Look what he says as he teaches Zephaniah. It is quite wrong and unhelpful to think that we should not preach anything that will challenge people's lives for fear it will deter them from turning to Christ. The Old Testament prophets pulled no punches when they spoke about God's punishment of evil and disobedience. Neither should God's people in these days as we seek to bring sinners to the foot of the cross in repentance and faith, close quote. All that is behind the therefore in verse 8. Now, look at the next clause. Next clause is wait for me. Now, here Zephaniah is tying into a long and strong prophetic tradition that is associated with this clause, wait for the Lord. Sometimes it's written, wait on the Lord. And wait for the Lord is a loaded and I think it's a very convicting term. It, it has two big features that are emphasized in different texts. Let me, let me show you this. Sometimes, especially in the Psalms, Waiting on the Lord refers to trusting God's word. His promises are real. They are certain, even, even when all one sees is mess all around you. In such moments, the wise person waits. That, that is, the wise person trusts God's words. Psalm 130, uh, verses 5 through 6, is exemplary of this. Um, I wait for Yahweh. I wait. I put my hope in His word. I wait for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. Say the repeated line with me. When it's underlined, you get to read it. More than watchman for the morning. Thank you. Waiting in these kinds of texts, and there are many of them, when you see wait in the Lord in those texts, it means, it means especially trusting God's promises. Now, the other facet of waiting involves letting God be God, to stop trying to take his place. This is especially highlighted in judgment passages, like those in the prophets or, or in the book of Proverbs. You see this a lot. For example, read with me. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22, all together. Don't say, I will avenge this evil. Wait on the Lord, and he will rescue you. Thank you. So when God has Zephaniah quote him saying, wait for me, it's, it's a loaded phrase. In Zephaniah, the waiting seems to emphasize each aspect of this. Look at the context. The context talks about God rising up to judge, right? And yet, the, the broader context also describes the need to trust God's promises as you wait. Because of that, this seems to be the, the rare kind of text where both characteristics of waiting are intended in one place. By the way, little note when you read Zephaniah, he likes doing this. 
He loves to grab words that aren't used all that often in the rest of the scripture and where they have multiple meanings and put them in a place where each meaning is actually intended. It's rare and really cool. Only Isaiah does it as much as he does. Now, I know what you're thinking. I get to talk about all this verbal stuff and, and in that um, Klingon voice that you use in your head in private, you're saying, which we all know means, what does this have to do with me, right? Thank you so much for asking. It's an excellent question. Um, let me answer your question with a question. All right, tell, tell me this. And here, here I am only addressing those who are believers in God, okay? Let me just ask you a question. Do you ever find yourself jumping into God's role? Do you ever find yourself taking God's place to make sure that justice is served, ensuring with your great power that things work out correctly? Do you ever do that? Raise your hand if you struggle with waiting for God in that sense. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Thank you. Very good. All right. Good, hands down. Now, question number two. Another question for you. Do you ever struggle with trusting him? It, it's, it's a binary question. It, it's, it's yes or no. Raise your hand if you sometimes struggle to believe God's promises in his word. Yeah, okay, I thought so. Understood. And now you see why I think that wait on the Lord or wait for the Lord is so incredibly convicting. We must learn this. L look at the quote I put in your notes. It's from the book The Choice. The idea that we would give up control willingly, replacing it with an intentional humility and absolute dependence on a God we cannot see is ludicrous, according to our cultural mores. And yet, that is the course that Jesus charts. And in doing so, he ushers in a kingdom value for everyone who would take up the cross and follow him. Close quote. God will judge. Wait for him. Get out of the way. And trust his promises. Read it again. Read verse 8. Therefore, wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration. Until the day I rise up for plunder. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, in order to pour out my indignation on them. All my burning anger. For the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. Now, the, the nations gathered there, that's a final day's event. The text is describing something that has developed uh, quite fully in the rest of the Minor Prophets and even more in the New Testament. Here, look at the map. Look up here at the map. Let me summarize. A day is coming in the future when God will gather armies that represent all of humanity, and, and they're going to converge right here in Israel's Jezreel Valley. All right, here's the Mediterranean Sea. There's the Sea of Galilee. This is Jezreel Valley. It is a perfect place for a massive battle, as Napoleon noted. 200 years ago, a little over 200 years ago, Napoleon stood at the site of Megiddo, and he looked out over the Jezreel Valley, and he said, this is a great spot for a massive battle. <laughs> Actually, he spoke in an Italian accent. But anyway, uh, th th that's what he noticed, and a massive battle it will be. The, the modern wars, the wars of, of my lifetime for Israel, where other nations around them have gathered, ganged up on them and attacked them, they're going like, to seem like minor skirmishes compared to what is going to happen in this day. From all of the United Nations, or whatever the world overlord is going to call it in those days, huge armies are going to be sent to attack Israel. And while all the nations think this is their idea, Zephaniah reveals that God is behind it all. Why does God decide to bring all these armies here? Look at the very last word of verse 8. He tells us, he does it in order to show his jealousy. And that takes us to our next big idea. Jealousy is a good thing in God. God's jealousy can be very hard to understand, uh, mainly because we equate jealousy with a sinful human trait of envy. 
That's the, we tend to use those as synonyms. If, for example, if somebody tells you that her boyfriend is the jealous type, right, is that a good or a bad thing? Somebody says, my boyfriend's a jealous type. Is that a positive or a negative? That's negative. In fact, we, we at that point usually become concerned about abuse, right? And here's the reason. Our sinful jealousy is all about controlling the object of our affection. That's, that's what jealousy is about. We, we see it as controlling someone. But God's jealousy is not sinful at all. Like everything else about the triune God, his jealousy is a pure and wonderful thing. There is no human sinfulness in it. God desires the best for the object of his affection. And God's jealousy is something the Bible rejoices about. I mean, re- seriously. A buddy of mine years ago wrote an article, it was brilliant, never forgotten it, in which he, he called out for Christians to sing praise songs to God about his jealousy the, the same way the Bible does. He even, he even rewrote a bunch of lyrics, jealousy, worship his jealousy. They never caught on. Um, and, and the reason they didn't catch on is because we really don't understand the goodness of God's jealousy. It's hard for us. So, so let me share a little story that may, it helps me, it may help you get a little closer to the beauty of God's jealousy. It, years ago, I was talking to a bunch of young, young men, a bunch of high school boys and early college age guys after a pickup basketball game. We played basketball for a couple of hours and then, and then it just, these just happened. It developed into one of those magical conversations that just go on and on for hours where very real and eternal and wonderful things are talked about. The, the hours just flew by as we talked. And, and, and finally, I looked at my watch. This was back before everybody had cell phones, okay? I looked at my watch, and it was, it was after midnight on a school night. And I said, dudes, your parents are going to kill us. They're probably out looking for you right now. Oh, my goodness. All right, you guys got to get out of here. Here. And I, I had a pen. I said, take down my phone number so they can call me and I can vouch for you. And the guys were like, oh, thanks. Okay. And they jetted out of there, right? Except one kid, this one kid, just, he just sighed. And he turned around and he went, back, he went back to shooting hoops. And I looked at him kind of quizzically. And he looked back at me and he said something I have never forgotten. He said, man. I wish there was somebody who cared where I was right now. Those guys have no idea how lucky they are to go home to parents who are mad about them staying out late. Close quote. Sinless jealousy is very good. It desires the best for the object of one's affection. I praise God that he is jealous for my soul. If if God weren't jealous, he wouldn't really own his people as his. And and not only does he care and want the best for them. Look look at verse 9. God promises to restore his people. Read read verse 9. For I will then restore pure speech to the peoples, so that all of them may call on the name of Yahweh and serve him with a single purpose. On the right side of your notes, uh, you'll find a few observations. First one is his restoration is built on covenant covenant. Remember what we discussed back in chapter 2? Yahweh, that name, that's the covenant name of God. This is the name for the unconquerable love that chooses a relationship and will not let it go. This is the God who established a, a unilateral covenant with Abraham. It's a covenant based on God's character alone. Abram believed God and thus he gained a right relationship with the Almighty. God chose Abe. God alone walked through the blood in their covenant ceremony. Abraham didn't. Abraham believed. God promised. Abraham believed. God promised that all of the world, even Gentiles, would be blessed through that Abrahamic covenant. In the same way, 
It is not merely the bilateral Mosaic covenant which guarantees restoration for Israel and hope for all the peoples. It is the Abrahamic covenant with Yahweh that guarantees a restoration for Israel and all the Gentiles, a restoration of a life that has been lost to sin. God's covenant of faith is specifically fulfilled in the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus God the Son. Those who trust him are grafted into Abraham's covenant family and they are promised a true restoration. This is the greatest news you will ever hear. Here, read with me. Read with me about it. Galatians chapter 3. You take the underlying text. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, then understand that, that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Now, the scriptures saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, who had faith. Amen? God's restoration is based on a faith covenant, and his restoration tames speech. You, you see the pure speech in verse 9? Hebrew word God uses here is very telling. There are a number of words in Hebrew for purity, but Yahweh has his prophet pen the term berur. Berur is a particular word. It's used fairly sparingly in the Bible. Berur, again, has two aspects. The experts tell me that even when one is dominant, the other is still at play in the text. Aspect one is ceremonial cleanliness. It's something separated and protected from guilt and sin. The, the other sense of berur is candidness, honesty, sincerity. That's God's idea of pure speech, clean and candid conversation. Now, given that definition of Beirut, do you hear very much pure speech these days? Yes or no? No, me either. Quite the opposite, in fact. I hear a lot of cursing, and I hear a lot of insincerity. And by the way, you can tell that this verse is concerned with the coming glorification that is promised to all who trust in Yahweh in the kingdom to come because people are given pure speech. No one, this, this side of glory, no one, no matter how sanctified, has pure speech. James chapter 3 poetically captures our situation. Here's you and I today. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, reptile, sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison, right? God is so amazing. Look at verse 9. He is so powerful that he can give all of his people the most incredible thing. He can give us pure speech, and one day he will. Now, the last idea in verse 9 may be even more incredible. His restoration focuses purpose. Uh, DTS professor George Hillman recently tweeted a fabulous statement about this. Uh, George was quoting a guy that was speaking at DTS, John Gardner. Look, look at this. This is really well said. John says, human beings have always employed an enormous variety of clever devices for running away from themselves. We can keep ourselves so busy, fill our lives with so many diversions, stuff our heads with so much knowledge, involve ourselves with so many people, cover so much ground that we never have time to probe the fearful and wonderful world within. By middle life, most of us are accomplished fugitives from ourselves, close quote. In that sense, all human beings are like a bad ADD support group, really. <laughs> That's what we are. By the way, I was talking with our drama team. We were going over this series, and I used that line with them. I said, all human beings remind me of, I, I think Zephaniah is saying, we're like a bad ADD support group. 
they ran, literally ran, with that idea. Take, take a look. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Oh. Hi. Welcome to our weekly meeting of the Adult Attention Deficit Disorders. You know, before we get started with all of your stories, I would like to introduce you guys to one of our newest members. This is Sally Scatter. Hi. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, great. I'd love to tell you a little bit about myself. I am trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. So I tried being a stockbroker, and there was all these numbers, and oh my gosh, and they, there's math involved, and then they want you to remember stuff. So not for me. Then I decided children are our future, right? I love kids. So I was going to be a teaching assistant, but that didn't work out so good either. Did you know that they make you come back with every single kid you take on a field trip? One. I lost one kid. I figure 19 out of 20 is pretty good. I don't know about you. Well, that happened to me. I mean, just cause you lose one. Right? So, anywho, I said, hmm, maybe I'll be a successful business entrepreneur. So I started my own business. I need a job. But then you have to like order stuff and deal with customers and oh, it's way too stressful. So then I decided, hey, is that a squirrel? What? Squirrel? Squirrel! squirrel. Hey, oh. I'm scared of squirrels. Nicely done. We can all relate. We can all relate. We tend to operate without any focus of purpose, especially any focus of purpose for our souls. Anyone here wowed with Michael Phelps' performance in the 2016 Olympic swim meet? Yeah, amazing, right? Now, you may have seen little bits and pieces that intimated that Phelps has undergone some great transformation. You saw little hints about that. But let me tell you what I've learned about the rest of the story. All right, 2014, 2014, Michael Phelps was arrested for his second DUI. The poor man was clearly a slave to alcohol. Ray Lewis, the, uh, the, the famous football player from Phelps' hometown of Baltimore, Ray Lewis convinced Michael Phelps to go into rehab. And as he went into rehab, Ray Lewis sent Michael uh, this best-selling uh, book. Many of you have read it, Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life. If you haven't read it, Rick Warren gives a very clear, simple, I think powerful exposure of the scriptural truth that we should do everything with our real purpose in mind. And our real purpose is to glorify God forever. From rehab, here's what Michael Phelps wrote back to Ray Lewis when he read that book. He said, man, this is what I've been searching for. Close quote. God knows that's what we all need. It's what we all seek. We need the single purpose that only comes through a relationship with the only one who is worth glorifying. That's why our church mission statement imitates Zephaniah 3 by including a focused statement of purpose. Re read it with me. The mission of Frisco Bible Church. Everyone together. We are redeemed community doing the great commission by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Thank you. Why do we do all we do? For what purpose? To glorify whom, everybody? God, who loves us. God, who restores us. Purposefulness is a big part of God's promised restoration. This is what our forefathers were getting at when they wrote the great hymn, Rise Up, O Men of God. Look at, look at these lyrics. These were inspired by Zephaniah 3 and texts like it. Rise up, O men of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. All God's people said, awesome. Look at these promises. God will rise up. He will restore. And God will purify. Look at verses 10 through 12. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my supplicants, my dispersed people will bring an offering to me. 
On that day you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. For then I will remove your proud, arrogant people from among you, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge in the name of Yahweh. Now again, this occurs after our days. It, the setting is part of the Messiah's millennial kingdom that comes when Jesus purifies the remnant of Israel. It starts when, when Jesus gathers the Jews to his kingdom. The, the time of Jacob's trouble has ended and Israel's scattered remnant is brought together and, and accepted home. Think about that. No group in all of human history has been as scattered as the Jews. No one's had diasporas like them. Do you know what the Jews are like? They're like the exits on, on Genie's flying carpet in the movie Aladdin. The exits are here, 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 everywhere, right? That's what the Jews have been like. And yet the Lord God of Israel is going to bring them all back together. They will bring offerings. Look at your text. They will bring offerings to God on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Again, verses 10 and 11 are describing a purification and a gathering in the future. You do know there is no Messiah ruling from Jerusalem today, right? Nonetheless, when you go to Jerusalem, even today, you, you can get a little feel for what this is going to be like. Every time I'm there, every time I go to Jerusalem, every time, I bump into these people just in the street who are believers in Messiah Jesus they're Jews that have come from all over the world. They're, they're born in Russia and the U.S. and Indonesia and Egypt and Argentina. And they all have come to Jerusalem and they've come to know Jesus the Messiah and, and they live there to praise him. It, it is a beautiful foretaste of what is going to be. Notice how the remnant of Israel comes in order to praise God. Look at verse 10. God calls them supplicants. Very important word. That means, supplicant means they're enjoying giving their gifts to God. In David Brooks' fascinating, if, if slightly flawed book, The Road to Character, he describes this dynamic. Look at this. Look, this is well written. He says, once you accept the fact that you are accepted, there is a great desire to go meet this love and reciprocate this gift. If, if you're passionately in love with a person, you naturally seek to delight her all the time. You want to buy her presents. You want to stand outside her window singing ridiculous songs. This is a replica of the way those who feel touched by grace seek to delight God. He goes on. They take pleasure in tasks that might please him. They work tirelessly at tasks they think might glorify him. They desire to rise up and meet God's love. That desire can arouse mighty energies. Listen to this. Dependency doesn't breed passivity. It breeds energy and accomplishment. Close quote. The diaspora of Israel's remnant finds out that they are accepted, and thus they live in praise to God. And that's what God wants for us to know that we are accepted and respond to that acceptance with humble trust and praise to our God. And we can do that. Guys, we can do that every day. We can praise God in our acceptance. And you know what? We can do it for the same reason that the remnant's going to be motivated. The remnant of restored Israel is motivated by the same thing that motivates us. Look at your text. We're motivated that shame and rebellion and arrogance are covered by grace. Because God rises up and calls sin what it is, people are positioned to understand and appreciate his grace. But you have to start with knowing what sin is. Paul House, I, I think, encapsulates this really nicely. Only through punishment can restoration emerge. Thus, Zephaniah chapter 3 provides the knowledge that after Yahweh's day, the day of his punishment, there will be blessings for the remnant. 
Blessings indeed. Look, look, look at all that God's grace purifies. Shame is removed. Rebellion is, is paid for. Haughtiness, the, the opposite of Berur, haughtiness is wiped out. You, you see how the people are on God's holy mountain? That's very significant. Humans cannot naturally draw near to God like that. He is holy, we are not, thus we must remain separate, and yet somehow God gathers them to his holiness. How, how is that possible? The rest of the scripture explains how. It's by his grace. He pays the ultimate punishment price himself, dying on a cross to atone for sins so that undeserving human beings can be accepted and drawn into a holy relationship with the triune God. That is grace. People cannot earn their way up God's holy mountain. They must be taken there by God's grace. In the road to character, Brooks goes on to make this brilliant statement. I liked it so much I put it in your notes. Look what David Brooks writes. People do not get what they deserve. Life would be hellish if they did. Instead, people get much more than they deserve. God offers us grace, which is his unmerited love. Close quote. God's grace is undeserved, and it changes everything. Let me show you. Let's do this, okay? Let, let, let's do this. If you have ever been ashamed, would, would you do this? Drop your head right now. Just, just aim your eyes at the floor. Drop your head if you've ever been ashamed. Just keep your head down for a moment. If you've ever rebelled, lo lower your eyes, would you? If you have ever been prideful, join the rest of us. Look at the floor if you have ever been prideful. All right, now keep your heads like that. Let me look around. That is a lot of bowed heads. Okay, eyes up, please. Eyes up. Now let's do this. If you have ever been blessed by God's unmerited favor, if you've ever been blessed by God's grace, would you, would you please stand up? Rise up, men and women of God, if you have received unmerited love from God instead of the punishment you deserve. Stand up if God has covered your shame and your pride and your rebellion with his grace. Isn't that beautiful? Let's praise our God. Show thanks to him. <laughs> Father, we praise you and we thank you for your grace. All God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. Now, look again at verse 12. One last time at verse 12. I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge in the name of Yahweh. God accepts Gentiles. Let me tell you why I, I'm certain this is Gentiles. Do you see proud, arrogant people in verse 11? You see that proud, arrogant people? Th those are the people whom God will remove, right? Every other, every other prophetic use of those two words, the two Hebrew words for proud and arrogant, are used of Gentiles. There, there are other words in Hebrew that are used of arrogant Jews, but these terms are used for Gentiles. So, verse 11 is describing the removal of proud and arrogant people, and they have to be Gentile. Well, if that's the case, remember, writing in parallel, like Hebrews do, writing in parallel, then the parallel in verse 12 surely is describing meek and humble Gentiles as well. Gentiles, verse 12 tells us, are going to be incorporated into Israel as fully accepted members of Yahweh's people. They will be covered in his refuge. The, the book of Romans describes this in terms of, of tree grafting. Gentiles, who are, who are like wild olive branches, Gentiles are going to be grafted onto the cultivated olive tree. They'll be spliced onto the stump of, of Abraham's Jewish Messiah. So according to Zephaniah chapter 3, this grafting, which has begun now, this grafting will reach its full fruit, no pun intended, in the millennium, right? And the only condition, the only condition for this grafting 
It's the same one that has always been the condition throughout the entire eternal Abrahamic covenant, faith. Gentiles are grafted in by trusting Yahweh, just as Abraham did. Look, look, look at the, the very word choice in verse 12. Refuge, really old Hebrew term, chasah. Chasah means to, to flee to for protection, to, to make something your refuge, to trust it. Friends, even though verse 12 is describing something that occurs in the later earthly kingdom of Jesus, you do know the principle is operative now. Right now, today, God accepts Gentiles, like most of you, into his family. You, you and I come here in our shame and our rebellion and our pride, but whether we're Jew or Gentile, God offers us complete salvation if we will humbly trust Messiah Jesus, God the Son, who died in our place and conquered the grave. The Bible's very clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Bow your head with me, please. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for anyone anyone who is studying with us that has not believed on the Lord Jesus and I I thank you that you love them and I and I join your spirit in asking that you will draw them to you friend listen really carefully you do not belong on God's holy mountain you don't and you know you know it not just because scripture says that you're sinful but and not just because your mom told you you were and she's right but you've, you feel it in your soul. There is something missing. This whole world, every religion in this world is about trying to climb up God's holy mountain through your effort. And you can tell, you've probably tried all of them, it doesn't work. But God loves you so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, fully God, fully human, who died on the cross to pay for your sin. And he rose from the dead so that everybody who trusts him could follow him in everlasting life. Trust him right now. Just talk to God and just tell him that you believe in Jesus alone for salvation. Not yourself, not anything else. Jesus alone. Listen, when you know you're accepted, David Brooks is right, when you know you're accepted, you want to rise up to the one who rises up. You want to meet that acceptance. It, dependence doesn't produce passivity. It produces energy. And, and now, for you who have trusted Christ, talk to God about how you, you want to and need to live a life that is, that is empowered by His love and grace. You want to act on it. In fact, let's act right now in this way. If you this morning just trusted in Jesus as Savior, if you put your faith in Jesus, raise your hand right now. Act. Raise your hand. Everybody else is praying. Raise your hand. Good for you. Praise God. Father, I pray for all of these believers in Christ that we will rise up in response to the God who rises up. And I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.